Welcome to Innovation Hub. I'm Kara Miller. A few years ago, you may remember this, an extremely young drug company CEO, he was about 30 at the time, decided to raise the cost of one of the drugs that he distributed from $13.50 a pill to $750 a pill. So 13 bucks one day, $750 the next. And it scared and angered a lot of people. The drug helps treat infections from parasites. And Martin Shkreli, who was young, rich, and pretty tactless, became for a moment a household name. In a seemingly unrelated development, though Shkreli did not think it was unrelated, he also landed in jail. Martin Shkreli was released on bail Thursday afternoon after being arrested and charged with fraud. This morning, 32-year-old ex-pharmaceutical CEO Martin Shkreli giving his first interview since being charged. In March, Shkreli was sentenced to seven years in prison. But the scandal has highlighted a couple of big questions. First, how do drug companies decide how to price drugs? And second, and perhaps even more importantly, if you run a drug company, what afflictions are worth your time and money? Now, you'd hope that decisions were being made based on the most serious issues that humanity faces. But that's not exactly how it works. They are looking for a financial return. So they're looking for areas where the science gives them a good shot. And they're looking for areas where they're going to be able to make a good return when they do it. Matt Herper is a reporter for Forbes covering science and medicine, and he says that not only is a slog towards a new drug long and the failure rate high, but it can cost anywhere from several million dollars to several billion dollars to develop the drug. And only about 10 percent of drugs in human trials actually pan out, which explains part of the cost. We've seen a revolution in cancer drugs which has coincided with a revolution in cancer drug pricing. I remember when Genentech, this was maybe 10 years ago, Genentech was getting in hot water because their cancer treatment of Aston was going to cost more than $50,000 for some people. Now it's routine for cancer drugs to cost $150,000, $200,000 per year. Now, you might think that as we get better and more efficient at creating pharmaceuticals, they'd become more affordable. In tech, there is something called Moore's Law, which says that the processing power of computers essentially doubles every two years. That means that over time, we can get faster computers and we can get them cheaper. Matt Herper says when it comes to the drugs you're prescribed, it doesn't quite work that way. In the pharma industry, we have this thing that's called Eroom's Law. E-room is more spelled backwards. It's an exponential (laughs) increase. That's the general trajectory. It seems to be getting better. It seems to not be exponential. So how do we deal with these super high prices? Many countries negotiate the prices down for everybody in the healthcare system. And there's some negotiating that goes on in the U.S., but we have much higher prices than almost every other industrialized country. Though negotiation is not our only cost-reducing strategy. Right now, the main mechanism we're using for controlling drug prices is public shaming. You'd think we need something better than that. It's surprisingly effective when we do use it. Like a couple reporters write a story saying, well, they raised the price by this much. And a lot of companies have said, "Okay, well, we're going to not do that for a while. But there's another element to add to this equation of whether companies prioritize cancer over Alzheimer's or insomnia over depression. According to author Barry Wirth, 
we should have a little sympathy for pharmaceutical companies. It's very, very hard to discover new drugs, harder all the time, even though there's, you know, there's a cornucopia of new discoveries that make new drugs um, appear extremely promising. But the industry as a whole over the last few decades has found it harder and harder to discover new drugs, particularly drugs that are transformational or make a real difference, a radical difference in people's lives. Worth is the author of The Antidote, Inside the World of New Pharma, and he says, look, the science is tough, investors are unforgiving. All of the companies, of course, are looking for uh, two things, return on their investment and money on Wall Street. And Wall Street, of course, is extremely myopic. So this this chase after money is um, bolstered by promises that the companies make about what they're to discover and when. But there's nothing quite like the drug industry in terms of pricing. So uh, the person, or I should say the agency that pays the cost of a pharmaceutical product is Mm -hmm. most likely going to be an insurance company or a government. Right. Um, But the user, the end user, is an individual. Right. And the buyer uh, is like a doctor or a hospital. Like, it's all different. Right. Yeah. Exactly. So unlike any other product, if you manufacture a mattress or a car or or a stereo component, you tend to be selling your product to the person who's buying it. Right. But in pharmaceuticals, you're not. And that distorts everything in terms Mm -hmm. of a business model. But there are, of course, cases like the Shkreli case that you um, described, which mm-hmm. are purely about gouging. But mm-hmm. but if you're looking at companies that are actually dedicated to research and development for discovering innovative new drugs that will change people's lives, um, th- that's just paying for all the uncertainties and all the failure that goes along with a very difficult scientific project. Now, I the the pharmaceutical industry likes to use this as a as if it's a get out of jail free card, mm-hmm. and. It's certainly it, – it probably shouldn't be. It's fair to note that dr- a lot of drugs are a lot less expensive in other countries. Mm-hmm. They could be underpriced there, but they could also be overpriced here right. or both. Right, right. Ken Frazier at Merck um, recently said to me – he's the CEO there. He said that investors don't have compassion, and it's true, and you mm-hmm. have to keep investors somewhat happy. Right, the, the people who buy your stock, right, who buy people shares People who buy your stock. Whatever. Yeah, yeah. Or if you're a private company, the people who own the company. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's also true that if you do a b- whole bunch of R&D in cars mm-hmm. and you come back and you show me a Ford Pinto mm-hmm. and you say, well, you should pay top dollar for this Ford Pinto because I spent a lot on R&D, you're right. going to look at me like I'm crazy. Like the, right. Right. the drugs have to be worth it and we right. do get to make a decision at some point. Barry, let me go back to a a question I uh, hinted at before, which is this idea of what drugs are chosen to develop. And if there is a lot of pressure from investors, um, you know, to come up with something that works and that's lucrative, I just wonder um, how much pressure is there to just come up with like a slightly better sleep aid? Because, you know, we know how to make sleep aids or like a slightly better erectile dysfunction pill. Now, maybe these are not the things that are going to advance society that much, but maybe you can make money on them in the short term. Well, that's certainly been the case. And that's really been the model for big pharma for decades, which is, um, well, I'll give you an example. So Lipitor, which was the fifth yeah. statin to be approved by the 
FDA became the biggest selling drug of all time. And that works only so much. And, and I, you know, I think it's important to say that, that really for the first time in the history of the American pharmaceutical industry, which was born during um, the 20s and 30s and really came of age in the 40s and 50s, there is now pushback on pricing. Up until now, there's been in the United States very little pushback um, and for exactly the reason that I described earlier. The insurers and the government were willing to pay the prices that the companies were charging. I should also say that because we have such high prices here and because the pharmaceutical lobby is so powerful and, and has arranged it so that the government doesn't negotiate on price, we end up subsidizing the rest of the world. So right. our high prices make it possible for the British, for the Irish, for instance, with their national health insurance programs mm -hmm. to negotiate lower prices. Mm -hmm. But talking about prices in the States, um, there hasn't been any pushback until now. And you see the difficulty with within the political debate in Washington. People can mm -hmm. continue to complain about high prices, but nobody seems to be able to do anything about them. And in fact, I remember during the election, you heard from both Republicans and Democrats the drug prices were too high. Although I haven't seen legislation to that effect, but you know. Well, and you and you probably won't, in yeah. part because of the power of the lobby, and in part because we value these products so highly. I mean, well, there's another reason we're not going to see legislation, which hmm. is that it's a really hard problem to fix. Uh, the legislations that the, the ideas that are being offered are things on the order of transparency. They're kind of formalizing the kind of shaming that really got Martin Shkreli in trouble. Mm -hmm. um, and part of what got Martin in trouble was that Martin, unlike most pharmaceutical executives, when you put him up in front of Congress, he didn't shut up and take it like you're supposed to. He mugged and he insulted and he tweeted. I mean, Martin Martin came to my healthcare conference and was asked what he should do about the price of... Uh, what he what he would have done differently? He said, "Oh, I would have raised the price more." This is after things had hit the fan. Hmm. You're listening to Innovation Hub. I'm Kara Miller. I'm talking with Matt Herper, a reporter for Forbes, and Barry Worth, author of the book "The Antidote: Inside the World of New Pharma." So, Matt, uh, Barry talked before about Lipitor. I wonder how much you think about or or worry about these kind of uh, Me Too drugs. And I wonder if drug companies focus on them because, like I said, we know how to make sleep aids and cholesterol-lowering drugs. Me Too drugs are the, one of the only things that do drive down cost. Um, okay. The statins, even back then, the Lipitor, Crestor, did um, compete on cost. And Lipitor and Crestor were a lot better than Zocor and Mevacor and Pravacol. So mm -hmm. those incremental... Because that gives – that's what these pharmacy benefit managers, then they're arguing two drugs against each other and people actually have to drop their price. Do you think there is a role here for government? I mean, should every company think about this question of what do we develop in isolation or should there be some kind of uh, government or scientific body that says, look, we don't have cutting edge antibiotics. This is a serious problem. Maybe we should incentivize their creation. The problem with the government is the government doesn't pay as much as greedy people. So when you when you just say, well, the government's going to set this as a goal. Well, if I get a Lipitor, the value of that Lipitor, Lipitor at its peak was doing $12 billion a year. Um, the the value of a drug over like that over the course of its life can be $50, $100 billion. Hmm. 
you're lucky if if you offer a billion dollar prize for a new antibiotic. That's about the same as if you had an antibiotic that was generating two hundred million a year. So it's、hmm. very hard to get that kind of money、uh, from the government.、Hmm. And if you the government starts telling companies what to develop, investors don't want to put in money for that. Barry, you've been covering the pharmaceutical industry for a long time. Give me a sense of like the trajectory that you've seen and that you know about. It, are more important drugs coming out now? Are less? Just give me a sense of what what the trajectory is. Well,、uh, so I started looking at the industry in 1989, I think. Okay. And that was before the human genome was solved.、Mm-hmm. Uh, that revolution in our understanding of how diseases, many many diseases, progress,、um, has has created a.、Um, A platform for many new drugs, rare diseases, which is an area that was、um, neglected for a long time and then pursued without much success for a long time,、right. is, are now very hot because it's possible with the disease where there's one genetic mutation or a couple of genetic mutations to actually design drugs that will、uh, re- reverse that genetic damage.、Um, the best example, I think, is the one I'm most familiar with, which is Vertex Pharmaceutical. And its work in cystic fibrosis.、Hmm. So when I was a kid, I'm I'm in my mid 60s now. People with cystic fibrosis barely made it into their teens.、Hmm. Painful, excruciating disease. Parents watch their children、uh, starve for air and eventually、uh, die of lung disease and digestive disease.、Um, Vertex has now, does, I think they're on the verge of getting their third approval for drugs that basically correct the work. Of damaged genes and are now they're restoring life to people. It is fairly well accepted now that soon, if you're born with cystic fibrosis, you're likely to be able to live a full life.、Huh. Um, most of that、um, sustained by these drugs, and that's been a, a godsend for those people. And it's been, I think, a wonderful thing for the scientific community to be able to claim that as a kind of a victory.、Hmm. The problem there is that there's Seventy thousand people worldwide who have that disease,、right. and、um, the, for those seventy thousand people, it is the difference between life and death. Right, But right. that's quite a small number,、right. and if we're looking at broader public health issues like diabetes or dis- also or diseases, and that's the other thing: diseases of age. I mean, is this the most effective use of our capital and of our scientific resources to? You know, again, for those patients, absolutely. For society in general, I think、um, we're reaching a reckoning where we're going to have to make some decisions about how we spend our our public health dollars, and that may not be the best place to put the money.、Mm-hmm. And and drugs, pharmaceuticals may not be the best place to put the money either. By the way, better health habits among the American population would probably、um, improve a lot more people's lives than any number of new medicines. Barry Worth is author of the book *The Antidote: Inside the World of New Pharma*. Matt Herper covers science and medicine for Forbes. Thanks so much to both of you. Pleasure to be here. Thank you very much. My conversation with Herper and Worth originally aired in March of this year. 
In May, President Trump released a plan to lower drug prices, which relies on a series of small initiatives. So far, though, it hasn't had much of an effect. In fact, many pharmaceutical companies have seen their stock prices soar since the announcement, which means Wall Street probably doesn't see price cuts ahead. And if you happen to be wondering, what's the most popular prescription drug in the world right now? It's Humira, which treats psoriasis and rheumatoid arthritis, among other things. Six years ago, Humira cost $19,000 a year. Now it's more than $38,000 a year. Not surprisingly, when experts looked at the cost of Humira in 2015, they found that the price in England had been negotiated to half of what it is here. And it was even cheaper in other countries, like Switzerland and Spain. 